Well, good morning, church family. It's good to see you. Uh, my name is David, and I serve here at Trinity as lead pastor. Happy Fourth of July weekend. I see all your fingers are, fingers are intact, so that means you had a successful Fourth of July, and I'm sure, like me, your bellies are full of different grilled meats, probably leftovers in the fridge waiting for you after church, but good to see you. If you're joining us online on this weekend, we know a lot of our church family are not returning at this point for a variety of reasons, but also this is a holiday weekend, so wherever you're watching us, uh, thanks for being with us this morning. If you're here this morning, you should have received a communion packet on your way in. It has both the wafer and the cup in there. There's a little thin uh, layer that covers the wafer, and then there's a thicker layer that covers the juice. This is new for us. We don't normally do communion this way, but in this time we are. And I do want to say that wafer is a far cry from the bread we've come to love that Holly and Miranda have made for us faithfully many years. So um, you're going to miss that bread this morning. Trust me, I've done communion once. That wafer, I don't even know if it's edible, but it's, it's what it represents, right? That's what matters most. So we're going to do that. If you're home watching, you can grab whatever you have in your kitchen, uh, some juice, some crackers, some bread, and partake in communion with us at the end of the service. So this morning, right before we jump into our message, I do, I do want to let you know that next week we're starting a brand new series that's going to take us into September through the summer, and it's our summer series, and it's simply a study of the life of David. David, this uh, incredible person, character, shepherd boy, king, poet, musician. We're going to spend nine weeks looking at his life and uh, I'm going to be sharing six of those nine weeks. You're also going to get to hear from some of our other pastors this summer, Pastor Unhee, Pastor Jason, Pastor Antonia. It's going to be a great series, so we are looking forward to that. But this morning, we are finishing our series on union with Christ, the life that you can have in and with Christ. In the first week, we talked about that because of Jesus, we have a new identity. Week two, it was because of Jesus, we can have a renewed image. Last week, we talked about because of Jesus, we can be holy and become holy. And this morning, I want to talk to you about the idea that because we're united with Christ, we have hope, great hope. I think hope's an important message in our world right now. I don't know how you've felt these last three months, but there's been some moments where I've felt a little hopeless about things. You know, maybe you have felt hopeless about this global pandemic that is affecting our world and, and still continuing to spike in different parts in our country, and maybe you feel hopeless about the fact that your life has been interrupted, and now you have to come to church and get your temperature checked, and you got to wear a mask during singing. Maybe that stuff steals hope from you. I understand that. That's all different. Maybe you've felt hopeless during this time as the racial tensions have resurfaced in our country, and important conversations are being had at many different levels, and, and regardless of where you land on that conversation, maybe you felt there's not a way forward. It's hopeless. We're not talking to each other. We're not listening to each other. We're just kind of yelling at each other. It's easy to lose your hope, isn't it? In this season, maybe you've struggled physically or emotionally or financially. People are out of work. Mentally, people are struggling um, emotionally, right? It's very easy. And, that, and then that's all on top of your own junk. <laughs> even, in, even in the good times, we got our own stuff, right? That, that tends to steal our hope from us. So as Christians, where do we find hope? Where is the hope that we're looking for? And in seasons like this, People often say, whether they believe in God or not, which is interesting, they often say, where is God in all of this? Where is he? And so this morning, I want us to look at two passages, one from the book of Romans and one from the book of Hebrews. And they're going to show us not just where is God, but where is Jesus? We're united with Jesus. Where is Jesus right now? What is he doing and what does it mean for us? So let's read together first from Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 34. The apostle Paul says, 
What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now listen, I could stop there and we should have hope in our hearts. That's good news. If God is for you, who can be against you? He did not spare his own son, speaking of God allowing his son Jesus to be sacrificed on our behalf for the forgiveness of our sins. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What are the things that you think God won't give you? Well, look at the cross. If he gave you his son, will he not give you all the things you need? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Paul is saying, if you are in Christ, nobody can bring a word against you. The enemy may want to speak a word against you. You may have family members that want to speak a word against you, friends, enemies that speak a word against you. This says that God has the final word. Who can bring a charge against you? God is the one who has made us righteous and holy. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one. He is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. And now where is he right now? It says it right here. He's at the right hand of God. What is he doing? Who indeed, he is interceding. That means he's praying for us. And then the author of Hebrews says something very similar. He says, or she, we don't know, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Here again, Jesus at the right hand of God, the position of favor, seated and enthroned, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he was perfected for all time those, or he has perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. This morning, there are three things that we learn about Jesus from this text. And the first thing is this, Jesus is seated in heaven. He's seated in heaven. Jesus is not standing up wringing his hands. He's not running around. He's not flipping out. He hasn't lost his cool. He's not like they've done like a Trinity huddle. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, come on, let's huddle up. Who didn't see the coronavirus coming? Which one of you dropped the ball this time? Holy Spirit, was it you this time? This, this, Jesus is not in heaven. He's not worried. He's not anxious. He's not striving. He is seated in heaven. Now, what does it mean that Jesus, like you all right now, is seated? We actually have to look all the way back to Genesis 2 to kind of get a clue and understand the significance of this, that Jesus is seated in heaven. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, on the seventh day of creation, it says that God took a break. He rested from his work. That God, on the seventh day of creation, he rested. He sat down, and he took a rest. Why did God rest after creation? Because he was tired? Because he was exhausted? Because he was spent? No, that's, that's you and me. The other day, I, I mowed my lawn. It was like 9 in the morning. I thought I'd be safe because it was early. It was already so hot, so humid. After an hour of mowing, I came in. I was drenched with sweat. I was so exhausted. I jumped in the shower, and then I just collapsed on the couch and rested. Because we're like that. We get tired. But our God does not grow tired. He does not get weary. So why did God sit? Because he, because he was satisfied. Because he was satisfied with his work. So when Jesus died on the cross, the last thing he said was this. It is finished. It's finished. What did he mean? He meant his work was complete. He had done what the Father had given him to do. He, it is finished. Then he was buried. Three days later, he rose from the grave, and then he ascended up to the, up to the heavens where he sat down. Why? Because he was exhausted and tired. Oh, all those miracles took a lot out of me. Whew, walking on the water, that really burns calories, right? None of that. He sat down for the same reason that the Father sat down in Genesis 2. Not because he was tired, but because he was satisfied with his work. Now, what does that mean? It means that what Jesus Christ did for you and me 
is completely sufficient. It's not lacking. There's nothing missing. It's everything we need. Jesus Christ now is seated at the right-hand side of the Father. He's satisfied with his work for you. Here's the question to us this morning. Are you satisfied with his work for you? Are you resting in his work? Or are you running around looking for satisfaction everywhere else? Or are you actually living out a form of faith that really is just you trying to work hard to prove something to God? Listen, because Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father and his work is sufficient and complete for you and I, here's what it means. Jesus is our greater Sabbath. He's our true and better Sabbath. He's the rest that we enter into. So we do not enter into Christ working. We enter into Christ worshiping. We don't work our way in. We worship our way in by adoring him and seeing the work that he has done. It's not your work. It's his work. Jesus is seated in heaven. The second thing that we see here is that not only is he seated in heaven, but Jesus is enthroned above all. See, Jesus won. He is the victor. I play, I play uh, my youngest daughter, Madeline, is six, and we play some board games together. And one of the games we play right now is called Princess Yahtzee. Disney Princess Yahtzee, and it's, you, you shake up the princesses, and you try to get three of the princesses, and then you try to fill up the board with the princesses' faces. And, and Madeline, believe it or not, I know she's, she's so sweet when she's here. She was here at the first service. She's so sweet, but she's a terrible loser. Terrible. She gets it from her mother. She really doesn't. No, I'm just kidding. Aaron's also not here, so I can say it. No, actually, I'm the poor, I'm the poor loser. But she's a terrible loser, and as soon as she thinks she's going to lose, she'll start to bargain. She'll go, Daddy, we can win together. We can, let's, let's win together. I'm like, no, Matt, this is not how it works. Like, I'm trying to teach her about life. Like, there's going to be a winner and there's going to be a loser. And the second I, if I win, um, the second she sees that dice go and she looks at it and she realizes that I got the final match I need to beat her, she will grab those dice and chuck them across the room. She doesn't want to be a part of losing. She wants to win. Listen, if you don't like losing and you're in Christ, you're in good shape because you're not losing. Jesus won the victory for us. He defeated Satan, sin, hell, and death at the cross. And he emerged from the tomb victorious. Jesus is not sitting up in heaven licking his wounds and waiting for his next chance to try to win. Jesus won. He is victorious. He is enthroned above all. He sits at the right-hand side of the Father, the position of favor on a throne. And if he's on a throne, it means he's a king. And if he's a king, it means there's a kingdom. And Jesus Christ came to establish a kingdom. That's why we pray things like, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, the kingdom of God. The early Christians, when they would talk about Jesus, the phrase they would use most frequently is this, Jesus is Lord. That's what they would say to each other. Jesus is Lord. Not Jesus is my best friend. Not Jesus is my savior. Not Jesus is my healer. Not Jesus is my deliverer. Those things are all true and fine, of course. But they understood Jesus' message about the kingdom. And a kingdom needs a master, a king, a lord. Jesus is Lord. Now, if Jesus is Lord, then that means two things for us this morning. The first thing it means is this, that Jesus wants to rule in full, not in parts. He wants to rule every area of your life, not just the areas you're willing to give to him. Everybody needs someone in their life that can fix certain things, right? You need a car guy. Unless, you, unless you're going to go broke fixing your car. You need somebody who can fix your car. You need a, an electrical person. Uh, you need someone who can do plumber, plumbing work. And yet, around our church, I know who to go to. If we need electrical work, I call up Rick Davis because Rick, that's his career. That was his job before he retired. He was an electrician. So 
Thank God for Rick Davis. He handles all, all the lighting, all this stuff. He does all of that. Now, if I want a guitar lesson, I'm not going to call Rick Davis. He, he, that's not his expertise. If we have construction work to do around the church, I, I reach out to Gary Houghton because he's a master carpenter. He's amazing what he can do. And actually, currently, he's helping us renovate our nursery so that when we reopen our nursery this fall, it's going to look completely different. It's going to be amazing. But he's the one who has that ability to do so. When we were trying to figure out how do we get our messages on Facebook and on YouTube and on Church Online, it was Chris Matalo, a young man in our church who has all of that expertise because when we need something, we go to the expert. And sometimes we think about that, we think about Jesus that way. Jesus, when I need you for a specific thing, I'll reach out to you because you're an expert on my messes and you're an expert on forgiving me and you're an expert on giving me the things I want, but I don't want you in full. I, I want you in part. We go to him for everything. On Mother's Day, I saw this meme online, and it had a list of all the questions that children ask their mothers. Where's my clothes? Where's my clean clothes? Where's my shoes? When's dinner? When's breakfast? When's, when's lunch? Why are we doing that? And then the other half of the meme had this questions kids ask their dads. Where's mom? <laughs> Sadly, it's kind of true in our house. Where's mom? Dad's rule in part sometimes, and mom's rule in full, right? They're the ones you go to. And we don't go to Jesus just for certain things. We go to him for everything, and we bring everything we have to them. And this matters so much because either Jesus is Lord of all or he's not Lord of anything. Either he's Lord of all or he's Lord of none. And if you want Jesus to rule in your life, and if you want the blessings that come from being in Christ, then you have to take all of him, not just some of him. See, sometimes we say, well, Jesus, I just want you to give me a little peace when life is a little chaotic. But listen to this. Jesus, peace, joy, love, those are not things Jesus gives. Those are things Jesus is. Those are not things, love, joy, peace, those are not things he gives to us from a distance. Those are things that he is. Jesus is our peace. Jesus is our joy. So what does that mean? You can't get peace, joy, and love if you won't receive Jesus. He has to give you himself you have to receive him fully and not in part. Okay, second thing here is this. You know, my daughters, uh, I have two older daughters. One is 12 and one is nine. And every now and then, especially during quarantine, where, where we've spent a tremendous amount of time in the home together, every now and then, I know you can't picture this if you know these two girls, every now and then they irritate each other. And I'll hear it happening in the other room. And I know what's coming next. The pitter-patter of feet to dad. To come, and they, what do they do? They make their case. She said this, and then she said this, and then she said this, and then this is why I shaved her head. Like, this is like, it kind of escalates like that, right? They're trying to explain what happened. They're giving me their account of this story, and I'm there. I'm the judge, and I'm the jury, and I'm there to make the decision. And what they're saying is, Dad, I need you to make a ruling. I, make, I need you to make a ruling. You rule in our lives, and you, you make a decision here based on the evidence we're bringing to you. But the moment I make a decision that one of them or both of them don't like, they don't want me to rule anymore. Because here's this thing. They didn't come to me to rule in their life. They came to me to rule in their favor. And there's a big difference in our lives between saying, Jesus, I want you to rule in my life versus I want you to rule in my favor. If we say I want you to rule in my favor, then we're just using Jesus to get the things that we really want most anyway. And you know what those things are? They're other kingdoms. We're trying to build other kingdoms. See, the battle in our hearts is not just between right and wrong. It's between God's kingdom and our kingdom. We have a lot of different kingdoms we tried to build. How about the kingdom of comfort and convenience? Anybody else ever guilty of that means a lot? 
I want to be comfortable. I want it to be convenient. And if anyone inconveniences me or, 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 or is an obstacle to my personal comfort, it's a problem. There's the kingdom of power and influence. There's a lot of ways to go after that. You can go after that through leadership, through politics, through religion, power and influence. There's the kingdom of status and uh, stuff, significance, getting stuff, succeeding, bulging bank accounts, boats, um, retirement plans, vacation homes. For many people, that is their kingdom. That's really what they, they, they live for. And they might, they might go to church and they might acknowledge God, but what they're really hoping is that God will rule in their favor and he'll give them their kingdom, lowercase k kingdom, when he wants to give us, in fact, the Bible says it's his delight to give us the kingdom. The Father wants to give us the uppercase K, that kingdom. There's so many different types of kingdoms that we encounter. And, and how do you know if, if there's a counterfeit false kingdom in your heart? Well, a couple clues. Number one, you cannot see the difference between your kingdom and God's kingdom. It just looks the same. You assume everything that you believe, God also happens to believe. <laughs> and when's the last time God's word or a sermon that you heard or a teaching that you heard actually confronted something you believe about life? Believe about yourself. Believe about If it's been years, then you're probably building the wrong kingdom. Because God's kingdom will... The biggest threat, listen, the biggest threat to your kingdom is Jesus. Because you know what Jesus wants to do? He wants to tear your kingdoms down. Not because he doesn't love you, but because he loves you very much. And he knows you are not made for those kingdoms. And those kingdoms will never satisfy you. And the kings of those kingdoms will not give their lives for you. But Jesus Christ is the one king who would give his life for us. And he invites us into that kingdom. So if we can't see the difference, how about if you can't critique your kingdom? You can't critique the thing you've aligned yourself with. A very polarizing time in our country politically, right? There's probably the most obvious thing I could have said this morning. Listen, if you can't critique your own party, if you can't see any flaws or anything wrong with where you aligned yourself, then you may be building the wrong kingdom. Because we don't belong. Those kingdoms are fine and all, but our hearts do not belong to those kingdoms. Your joy cannot be wrapped up in what happens this November in an election. You wrap your joy up in that, then 50% of our country is going to be very, very angry this November, no matter what happens. Christians, it's fine to be engaged. We should be good citizens. citizens. We should vote. We should, we should use our voices. But please don't confuse that kingdom with God's kingdom. They're not the same thing. Those kingdoms will all come and go, but God's kingdom will remain forever. And it's only his kingdom that we find righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. All those other kingdoms, you place your deepest hope in those kingdoms. You place your deepest hope in the Republican kingdom, in the Democratic uh, kingdom. You place your deepest hopes in that. You are your emotions are always going to get jerked around. You're always going to have inner angst. You're never going to have peace. You're always going to have to fight. You're always going to have to prove yourself. You're always going to have to correct everybody else who doesn't agree with you. Which, by the way, is another indicator that that kingdom means too much to you, that you can't love people who are in a different kingdom than you. But God's kingdom brings us all in. I saw this amazing post last night, I think actually it was in, maybe in, in, in one of our teenagers' Instagram stories, that said, imagine Paul, the Apostle Paul, imagine all the Christians that Paul killed. Remember, Paul killed Christians. Maybe you didn't know that, but Paul killed Christians. He was a persecutor of Christians before he became a leader of Christians. Imagine all the Christians that Paul killed excitedly clapping and rejoicing when Paul walked into heaven. That's the kingdom. That's the gospel. There's room for people who are in different lowercase kingdoms than you because your deepest loyalty, what does the scripture say? We are citizens in heaven, okay? 
Be great citizens of America and, and take every opportunity you have to be a great citizen. But do not put your deepest hope and trust in what happens this fall and what happens in politics. That will steal your joy over and over. It's the wrong kingdom. And Jesus wants to tear it down. And I do believe, why am I taking two, three minutes to talk about this? Because I actually do believe this is one of the biggest kingdoms that Jesus wants to tear down in the hearts of his church. We're very distracted by this. I'm not saying it's unimportant. I'm saying it's not primary. It's not the most important. God has a work for us to do. Jesus won't be used. He will be Lord. And if he is enthroned above all, and if we put our faith and trust in him, then that means that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So as you look around, don't lose your hope. Why? Because Jesus is seated on the throne. He is above all. And listen, someday, I love the hymn says this, someday we're going to stand before him. And it says this, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. What's that moment going to be like? When you start to lose your hope here on earth, think about that moment, standing shoulder to shoulder with all those that you've loved and lost together in the presence of God, and we stand and we sing and we shout about the victory that Jesus had because he is enthroned above all. Lastly, this morning, Jesus is seated in heaven. He is enthroned above all, but he's praying for us. This is such good news. I remember when I was a teenager, I'd go to youth events, and they'd have an altar call, and we'd go to the front for prayer. And you know who I wanted to pray for me? The speaker. Of course, the speaker. I, w- I wanted the speaker to pray for me. I didn't want Volunteer Jim to come over and pray with me, because he drove me there, and I know him. Like, he's not the anointed one. The anointed one is the speaker, right, whoever has the microphone. And so I would try to get near the speaker so that the speaker would pray for me, because I thought if he or she prays for me, then there's an extra blessing and anointing that will come upon me. Listen, Jesus himself this morning is praying for you. He's praying for you. As you drove here, he was praying for you. As you're seated here, he's praying for you. And here's what I love about Jesus' prayers for us. He is not praying for you based on your performance or your goodness. He's not saying, Father, look at, look at John and look at Jason, look at Melissa, look how impressive their weeks have been. He's not bringing up your version reading plan uh, track record and saying, look at they've read the Bible every day this week, and look at all the words they didn't say, and look at all the things that they didn't watch, and, and would you please bless? No, Jesus is praying for you based on his performance record in your place. His goodness, not your goodness. That's how Jesus prays for us. He is our high priest who made the sacrifice once and for all. And he's our sympathetic high priest, which means he gets it. Children, Jesus knows what it's like to be your age. He knows what it's like to be six years old, seven years old, 12 years old. Jesus knows this. Jesus was a fully human. He was tempted in every way that we are tempted, but he did not sin. He is our sympathetic high priest, and he intercedes for us. And because of our union with Christ, we have a great hope. Now let's look at this verse. Paul writes this in Ephesians 2. We're going to get ready to close here. He says, because of union with Christ, look at our great hope. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him. And look what it says. He has seated us. He seated us with Jesus, with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. That means right now, if you are united with Christ, in a sense, you are seated with Christ in heaven. What does that mean? It means that you have the same access to the Father that Jesus has to the Father because of his work on your behalf. You're seated in him. That's what's happening right now. But what's going to happen someday? 
Verse 7, so that in the coming ages, that's future tense, right? In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What's our great hope? Our great hope is that right now we are seated in the heavenly places with Christ, but someday we will reign and rule with him. We'll be with him someday in heaven. We will be with Christ. Now, here's the, here's the best thing. Let me, let me finish by sharing you what I think are the two best things about heaven. I used to think it would be maybe like Chinese buffet in heaven without having to worry about calories. I thought maybe that would be the best. That's probably only the fifth best thing about heaven. Let me tell you the, the two best things about heaven. The very best thing about heaven is this. You will be with Jesus. This is the best thing about heaven. Mary read it earlier from Isaiah 25 that in the, on that final day in the new heavens and the earth, new earth, we will say, this is our God. And we trusted in him. And he saved us. And he didn't let us down. You will be with Jesus. And this is a joy that will get better and better and better forever as he continues in the coming age to display his grace in our lives. You're not going to get, you know, on this earth we get bored with stuff. We get unimpressed with stuff. Kids, you get a toy and two weeks later you don't even want to play with it anymore, right? Nothing in this world gets better and brighter and the glory increases. But in heaven forever, it'll be better and better. Every day will be better than the day before. As we see Jesus more, we understand him more, we become more like him. The best thing about heaven is you will be with Jesus. But the second best thing about heaven is this. You will be like Jesus. Think about this, friend. In heaven and for eternity, because you're united with Christ, you will serve God the way you wish you always had served God. You will serve God the way you wish you always served him. Because you'll be like him. You'll see him and you'll behold him and you'll be transformed into his image. It doesn't mean we're all going to look like Jesus and be little mini clones of Jesus. What it means is the way in which Jesus perfectly bears the image of the Father, you're going to do that someday. No more sickness, no more sin, no more shame, no more regret, no more insecurity, no more pride, no more lust, no more anger, no more arrogance, no more judgmental spirit, no more critical heart. Brilliant minds, pure hearts, perfect bodies, and we'll be like him. Let that fill your heart with hope. On your darkest day and in your most difficult moments, tell yourself those two truths. Someday I will be with Jesus and someday I will be like Jesus. And it's all possible because we've been united to Jesus. If someone ever asks you, are you really going to go to heaven someday? Christians don't say, well, of course I am. How dare you ask? Because we don't, we're not arrogant about it. We're in awe of it. Christians also don't say, I hope so, fingers crossed, we'll see. Because you don't have to hope so, you can know so. Certainty, that is, here's what Christians say if they're asked, are you going to be in heaven someday? You say, you know what, my life is hidden in Christ. And if Jesus is going to be there, I'm going to be there. Because I'm in Christ. I don't live for myself, I live for him. And it's all possible, we can be with Jesus and we can be like Jesus. It's all possible simply because Jesus is seated in heaven, He's enthroned above all, and he's praying for us. Let's pray together this morning.